if you would this morning, open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. And we're going to continue our study of uh, volume two of Luke's gospel. Um, this morning, we'll undertake an examination of chapter um, 13, looking at verses 13 through 25. Uh, we will begin with prayer. Then we will read the text under consideration. And then finally, uh, we will take a verse-by-verse study of the passage, making observations and applications as we go. So if you would pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning in need of encouragement from your word. We are sure of your gracious provision for us today. You have proven your faithfulness in the past. You have chosen us and you have carried us. You, Lord, are long-suffering and patient with our failures. We know that you are our great reward. We ask this morning that you would help us be those who diligently seek after you. In Christ, you've sent a greater prophet, a greater priest, and a greater king who is both Savior and Lord. We pray for ourselves and for the saints who gather at Baker Creek Church this morning, we ask that, that your church would be attentive to the Word of God as it is preached, and that we would all be uh, not only just hearers of the Word, but we would be doers of your Word. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ and in the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, as you are able, would you please uh, stand with me for the reading of the infallible, inerrant Word of God from Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This is God's word. You may be seated. Our sermon this morning is, is entitled A Word of Encouragement 
it is as promised, and this is part one of a two-part message. Through Through the precious promises of God, the Apostle Peter says that we become participants in the divine nature. Paul also writes to the Corinthian church that the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ Jesus. That is that the promises of God are delivered to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the surety of those promises are fully and finally filled in Christ alone. The amen in Jesus is this, so be it. It is as promised. How reliable have the promises that have been made to you uh, been in your earthly experience? Our lives are filled with broken promises, aren't they? For some of us, when we were young, maybe we, we met a person of the opposite gender and we made these forever promises to one another and then they were dashed, unfulfilled promises. When we watch commercials on TV, the commercial markets make great promises of products that guarantee to us that we will feel and look better. We will drop 20 pounds in a month. And on day 32, we are disappointed because in short order, we now weigh 22 pounds heavier than when we started. And even think about this. Sin always makes promises to us that it cannot fulfill, doesn't it? It offers pleasure, and its season is very short-lived. That is because sin desires to deceive us, to tell us that this is the answer. We cannot trust feelings of love or even the promises of love from another. We can't ultimately trust that the marketplace will live up to the promises that it makes. Politicians' promises cannot be ultimately fulfilled because individual politicians, we've discovered, have very little control over the outcome of other people's intentions and desires. You may have heard it said, trust your heart then. We can't even trust the promises we make to ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see, we have already in our previous studies asserted that Luke's aim in this two-volume work of Luke-Acts is to give an orderly account that the reader will be certain of the things that are being taught. And so I would say that the aim of this morning's message is that you and I would be encouraged that we would be certain that the promises of God can fully be trusted. The word of encouragement I give to you from the scriptures today is this. It is as he promised. It is as he promised. And further, my aim not only for you to understand that and for you to get that word of encouragement, my aim is further that it will lead you to praise of God. It will lead you to praise God just as the psalmist does in 145. I'm just going to read the whole psalm as I think about the promises of God. 
I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and great His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and it shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of your glory, of your kingdom, and tell of your power, to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are failing and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears the cries and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. I say all of these words from the psalmist, I repeat them, because it is as he has promised. To get us some context here this morning, we know that from our previous study, the Holy Spirit has selected two men for the expansion of the gospel, Barnabas and Saul. The church together, collectively, they fasted and they prayed and they received confirmation concerning these two men. They laid hands on them. And this was to signify that the church is unified in sending them on mission. The, year, the church is going with them, as it were, on this mission. And these two are really just representatives of the church's engagement in bringing the whole gospel to the whole world. So let us look at verses 13 and 14 uh, closely. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Two changes take place in verse 13 that will signal to us want us to catch it. This is a foreshadowing verse. It, it means much more than it, it simply looks like at first blush. It begins with, now Paul and his companions. This is the first change that should signal to us that soon the gospel is going to be offered to the Gentile nations in full measure. We will see this as we conclude our study of chapter 13 in a couple weeks. The first change to note, though, is that when these two men are chosen, remember that Barnabas was named first. And this would indicate that he was the leader of the mission that was being sent out, the expansion of the mission, and that Saul would have been his supporting cast. But as verse 13 opens, it says, Paul 
and his companions are setting out. This signifies a change in leadership. Barnabas was originally the leader who had come to Antioch, and when he came to Antioch, he went and then sent for Paul to come. And he went there to confirm the Lord's work in spreading the gospel as it was being spread there. Barnabas, then, was also known as the son of encouragement. And we will see later that these are asking, if you have any encouragement from the word, deliver it to us. And it seems weird. Why would they choose Paul? When, when Barnabas is known as the encourager. Because a, a change in leadership has taken place. A change in the focus and the spread, the further spread of the gospel um, has been changed. They, the, Barnabas, the, the, the uh, son of encouragement, who is he replaced by? He, he's replaced by a leader who's known as kind of hard-nosed and an unyielding man of principle who is now known as Paul. We should note that Saul is also using the Greek pronunciation of his name, which is foreshadowing the missional change from the Jews to the Gentiles. You probably have read this and heard this. Many Bible commentators, uh, they've tried to say that, that um, they make much of this name change, and they read something into it, saying that, that this indicates uh, a change in Paul. Yes, Paul, uh, Saul has been changed, but the name indicates more about God's direction in winning Gentiles to Jesus than it does about the transformation of Saul. Saul is the pronunciation of his name in Hebrew, and Paul is the name and how they would have pronounced it in the Greek-speaking world. So to the Jews, Saul related as a Jew. To the Gentiles, to the Greeks, he related as, as a Greek, as one of them. To the Greek-speaking world, Paul would relate to them and, and, and would rely upon his connection to them as a citizen of Rome. Thinking about this in application for us is in winning souls to Jesus, I want to give us one word of uh, admonition here. In winning souls to Jesus, we don't need to be weird. We just don't need to be weird. We don't need to wear clothes or gear that say I am something. We don't need to do anything that is weird and, and looks absolutely foreign. We are foreigners. We are strangers, pilgrims. We are, we are weird people in that we have Christ and they don't. That's, that's weird enough. But we don't need to be weird. We don't need to be weird to win people to Jesus. It is, it is something that we simply have just a message to proclaim. We just proclaim who, who Jesus is. We, we have a promise. We have a promise to give that forgiveness for sin is found in Jesus Christ. In winning souls, we would do well to remember the things that we have in, com in common with the people that we're delivering this message to. We don't need to be weird or different or look strange as the world would see it. Because to reach them, we need to say, we have something in common with you. And that is, I too was dead in my trespasses and sins. I once walked in them, following the course of this world. But the promise of God is that He, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. And then we declare to them that by grace you can receive this same promise and you may be raised with Him. 
This is the promise that we share in relationship to people who are just like us and just like we were when we were absent of Christ. So here we see these group of missionaries led by Paul and sent by the church, uh, and they reach this another Antioch. Seems weird. They were in Antioch, and it says now they are in Antioch. So that we're not confused, several cities were named Antioch by, and I'm going to butcher his name, Seleucius I, I think I said it right, in honor of his father uh, Antiochus. Well, Antioch and Pisidia is significant in that it was a Roman colony. It was the lead city in the area of uh, Phrygia Galatica. Again, too many words for me to try to pronounce these. Um, but this Antioch was not, in fact, in Pisidia, even though it says Antioch in Pisidia, because there were two cities in that same region with the same name. So this city is known as Antioch toward Pisidia. It was, it was aimed towards that area. Well, we see also here that John leaves the group and he returns to Jerusalem. There's much speculation as to why John leaves, but it's really kind of uncertain. But whatever the reason, Paul thinks it's a big deal, and he's later going to make much of it. Uh, he's, he's seeing this return to Jerusalem as, as, uh, as him being unfit uh, for further missions, and yet his cousin Barnabas, he welcomes him back. And so there's some contention. We don't know why he left, uh, but he did indeed leave and Paul, who is the leader of this, takes very much offense at it. But needless to say, he's not going forward with them. Paul and his company are uh, moving forward. So, looking again at 14 and uh, 15. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets... The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Paul and company are sent by the Holy Spirit. And guess what? They go where the audience would have a familiarity with the scriptures. They're not going to, to some foreign land where they don't have an open door. Right? They're going where there is a possibility that these who, who fear God, who uh, understand that God's word is the authoritative scripture, they've got at least that in common with them, right? That they might uh, give ear to what it is that, that these missionaries are about to say. They would be among those that at some level they fear Yahweh. They are either Jews or proselytes. They, they fear Yahweh and they, they might be willing to hear the word. So we see this in, throughout the scriptures. Whenever we see Paul on mission, the first stop is the synagogue. And that's the first place, because that would be the possibility of an open door, right? Well, so as we notice here in this passage, the synagogue has a liturgy. I've had some say, well, the, the church here at Spring Hill is pretty, you know, orderly, and there's a reason for that. Uh, it is really the Word of God is what forms how we worship, right? We worship according to the Word of God, and my, my hope is, is that the Word of God leads us through worship. Well, here... It is the same. The synagogue has a liturgy. It's, it's, it's formal. There was a scripture reading from the law, which always followed opening prayers. So there's an opening prayer comes, then they read first from the law, then they give a lesson from the prophets, and if there was a competent man in attendance, then they would be invited to deliver a sermon 
related to those lessons. So here, they say, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. If you're here in church today and you don't know that you are chosen of God, that you that your sin is forgiven in Jesus Christ's atoning death on a cross, I have a word of encouragement for you this morning. That God has promised to His chosen people divine power. He has granted to those whom He has chosen everything that is needed for eternal life and for godliness. He has promised knowledge of His Son and of Himself uh, to those that He has called. Through these promises, you can partake in the divine nature. He has promised escape from the corruption of the world and the corruption of your own sinful nature. It is as promised. Who among you is ready to receive encouragement? It is granted to those to whom uh, it is first granted repentance and faith. You want encouragement? It first must be granted to you by the power of God and the Holy Spirit, repentance and faith. And then we understand this, that the promise of God finds its ultimate, final yes and amen in only one name, in only one person, and that is Jesus Christ. So here, Paul stands up and he motions with his hand, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The encouragement from Paul is going to be that it is as it is promised. It is. It seems rather ironic here that, that Paul's encouragement is laid out quite similarly to the argument that was made by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The history of God's promise to Israel is what Stephen argues and, and uses in his defense to the high priest. Paul now uses this to encourage people that God's promises find their fulfillment in Christ. And remember back then that, that Saul, uh, Paul, his rejection of the message of Stephen uh, was great and that he actually participated and encouraged in Stephen's execution. The promise of God finds their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. This Saul who's delivering this message, I find it ironic, was once a man who was stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, resistant to the Holy Spirit. Now having been cut to the heart, having been broken in spirit, he turned to the reality that it is as God promised. It is as Stephen preached already. It is as promised. I love that this the converted person has the same message. Like we don't, it, it doesn't change, does it? There, there's a message it is as promised, and it finds it f its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That is what Stephen said. That's what Stephen proclaimed, and Saul made sure he was killed for it. Then when Saul is converted, his message is, it is as promised, and, and the truth is, is that God's promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, just as Stephen said. It is as it is promised. We have one message for all of us who have been cut to the heart, all of us who have been broken in spirit. We understand that it is as God has promised. 
The promises of God are fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. And so here Paul begins, Listen, men of Israel, and you who fear God, I will lay out the history of the promise-keeping God, and I will show you that all of those things you know from the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He's laying out a great uh, argument with one truth. It is as promised. Verse 17, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Paul's first point is that God chose a people according to promise. Genesis 12, 7 says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Though their sin drove them to Egypt, and they became enslaved to foreign taskmasters, God prospered them as promised. God caused them to bear much fruit, and he delivered them out of bondage. It is as was promised to your forefathers, is Paul's argument. Verse 18. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. He put up with them in the wilderness. Put up with them. The King James uh, reads like this. It's translated, Suffered he their manners. Suffered he their manners. This is a Jewish idiom that can either mean to feed them or to put up with. The ESV translate this, he put up with them. But I think Paul's intention here, uh, this his encouragement could well mean both. He put up with them in that he was long-suffering. And we know the history that God fed them and provided for them and guided them in the wilderness. I think it the Jewish idiom fits both. He suffered he their manners. He suffered long with their sin and provided for them a way out. He was long patient and he suffered many of their grumblings and their sins as we remember from reading that story. All of this, the provision, the patient endurance with their sin did not negate the promise of God to his chosen people. It is as promised. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. He promised them an inheritance. It is as promised. Though they went through an enslavement to sin, through great rebellion, through famine, through the enemy attack, God suffered long with his people, and he fought for them. He provided for them the inheritance that he promised. God delivered it is as promised through no merit of your own, Israel, is, is the connotation here. Through no effort of your own, God, he suffered, he suffered with you, and he provided for you. And it is as promised. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. He's saying, you were chosen. You were chosen as was promised to Abraham. You were delivered from the hand of the enemy as was promised. You were provided for as promised. God gave you inheritance after suffering long with your rebellion. He gave you his word to live by, and he gave you a mediator to plead your cause in your failure to follow the law through Moses. After this, 
uh, after all this, He gave you mediators through judges to to when you failed to uphold the Word of God with regard to how you lived with each other, He gave you judges to mediate. God then gave you further, He gave you men through whom He would speak concerning His judgments and concerning His deliverance in the prophets. You see, it is as it was promised. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. You asked for a king, a king like the other nations. Listen to what they asked for. Appoint for us a king to judge us like the other nations. 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. Even though the request was displeasing to the prophet Samuel, listen to verse 6. Give us a king to judge us. Samuel says, this is, this is displeasing to me as the one who's delivering the word of God to you, which means it is displeasing to God. And their answer is, give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed and, and, and the Lord gave uh, them a warning through Samuel. He says, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. So then, in verse 11, Samuel spells this out. He says, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to chariots and to his, to be his horsemen and to run after, uh, before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and all of orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and they will put, he will put them to his work. He will then take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So even with the warning Here's the warning. You ask for a king. You ask for a king like the nations. This is what the king of the nations are like. The people refused to hear and obey the prophet of the Lord, nor to heed the warnings of the Lord. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he, re he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to ha uh, Samuel, obey their voice, and make them a king. It is for Israel under King Saul. It was as promised, wasn't it? It turned out just as God had promised it would be under Saul. But then God raised up for himself a champion, a champion for the people, a champion for his, his people Israel, King David, a man uh, after my heart who will do my will, he says. In the Psalms, if you read through many of them, you'll see that, that David's heart desire was to please God. 
And his aim was to submit himself to the will of God. And, of course, we also see the exploits and failures of King David uh, that are chronicled in the Scriptures. King David had a right heart and a right mind. Yet there's one problem. He was not without sin. King David was a great king. He was a king who was after the heart of God, who desired to do his will. But he had one problem. He was a king who was not without sin. Verse 23, here comes the good news. They want a king. They get a horrible one. God raises up a good man. Yet this good man still is not a man without sin. And then here comes this, the ultimate good news, the ultimate fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance and, uh, to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet, feet I am uh, not worthy to untie. It is as promised. It is. It was promised in First Kings chapter eight twenty five. You shall not lack a man to sit be, uh, before me on the throne of Israel. It is as promised. The greater David, who has come, is the one from whom David came. Seems strange, doesn't it? The one who comes after David is the one whom David says he came from. In Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. And Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, you may recall this quotation of Psalm 110 in Acts, 24, uh, Acts 2, uh, 34 and 36. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, it is as promised. The one who has come is the one who always was. It is he whom God sent to save. Jesus is the greater mediator, greater than the Moses who was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus comes and He is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant and He is the once and for all and only mediator. Hebrews 9, 13-15 says, For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Israel, Paul would say, you have had much reverence for the voice of the one who cried in the wilderness. See, in that culture, in that time, John the Baptist was, was thought quite highly of, Right? He's like, you, you have much reverence for this John the Baptist, this new prophet who came along recently. John the Baptist, uh, he announced a, a baptism of repentance. In John's 
own words, basically here he's saying, I announce only the, the one who's baptism, I, I announce him who not only covers sin, but, but the, the baptism that actually brings and introduces new life. The greater has come in Jesus. It is as it was promised. You see, the promise of God finds their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we confess this truth at this church, that the promise of God finds its yes and amen, the end of the story. It is the end. We don't have much to say, guys. I don't have much to say, because I'm not a very smart man. I have one thing to say, though. I have one thing to say, that Jesus is the promise of God for me. He came and he died for my sin, as promised. When I was dead in my trespasses and sins, by God's grace and his goodness, he sent his son. While I was dead, while I was dead, he saved me, as God promised when we confess the word made flesh, I'm just going to read this this morning for us because it, it tells us the greater Jesus and the, and, the, and the promise of God. God promised to give us his word, right? God promised a, us a prophet. He promised us a priest. He promised us a king. And he showed Israel through fulfilled promises. He gave them all of those things. And then here Paul's laying out, the greater promise has come. It is fully fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh. That is the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ. It is the promise of the Word in Him. And we rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, He became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, He kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us His righteous robe. Is that not promise fulfilled, isn't it? That's our proclamation. For us, He kept the law. For us, He atoned for sin and satisfied God's wrath. It is as promised. He took our filthy rags and gave us His righteous robe as promised. And He's greater than any and all that have come before Him. Everything that we read from the Old Testament through the New Testament all the way to the end, there's one story, there's one headline, and the headline is this, that Jesus Christ dies for sinners. That's the headline. Everything else brings us to that headline. It is as promised. And the promise of God finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so we declare this. He is our prophet, our priest and king. He is building his church, interceding for us and reigning over all things. And then ultimately our answer to who is Jesus, the promise of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. And anybody who's listening here this morning or may hear this later online, I want to say, I want to end with this. 
Repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand and it is as promised. You can deny it all you want. You can make up whatever lie you want to hang on to. But it will not change the reality that it is currently in the world we live in as God has promised it. Whatever promises he makes in the future for those who, who are unrepentant, it will be as promised. It is as promised for you. So today, repent and believe the gospel because it is as God promised.